This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected today and building it for tomorrow with 5G on America's best network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Ambassador Susan Rice joined the Washington Post as leaders of the Democratic Party gathered for the national convention. Rice is on Joe Biden's shortlist for a running mate and has worked closely with the former vice president. She discussed the dynamics shaping this historic presidential election, her thought on the Biden-Harris ticket, and any future role she might play in a Biden administration. Let's listen. I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post, and we are absolutely delighted that you could join us this afternoon for our post live coverage during this uh, convention week. And we are also delighted to have as our, our guest this afternoon, Ambassador Susan Rice, who was National Security Advisor in the second Obama t- term in office and before that was UN Ambassador. So welcome Ambassador Rice and also congratulations on your new best-selling book, Tough Love. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be with you. Good afternoon, everyone. So so this is a convention unlike any other that we've ever seen, uh, forced by circumstance that way. Um, so how do you think it's going? And specifically, what did you think of, uh, of Senator Harris's ex- acceptance speech last night? Well, I thought I think the whole convention uh, has been really quite good and much better than certainly I would have expected, and we didn't really know what to expect, but I find the the virtual format to be very personal, very compelling, uh, and very human. Um, And so every night I've found myself excited and pleasantly surprised at at how much substance is in it and how much we're really getting a feel for the issues and the challenges and the hopes of everyday Americans and the showcasing of this nation's extraordinary diversity and complexity, the themes of unity uh, and together uh, we can prevail, I think are are absolutely appropriate. And every night I've found uh, inspiring. Last night was tremendous, of course, um, between President Obama and Senator Harris, uh, among so many others. It really was uh, a remarkable evening. I thought Senator Harris gave a great speech, um, as one would have expected. And uh, we got a better sense of who she is and, and what motivates her and where she came from, her, her sort of origin story, uh, but also the issues that animate her and you know the, the passion and the commitment that I think she'll, she'll bring to the job and, and to the campaign. So uh, I think it was definitely a, a winning evening for her and for the ticket, uh, and I believe for the country. And your name, of course, was on the short list uh, during the whole selection process. In fact, your name was on the very, very short list during this uh, selection process. What do you think finally um, finally turned the choice in the end for Vice President Biden? Well, I can't speak for Vice President Biden, of course, but uh, I'm, I must say it was my honor uh, and quite humbling to be among what it was an extraordinary group of women uh, who were considered through this process. I think Vice President Biden had to, to weigh a, a wide range of factors. Each of us you know, brought particular strengths and, and perhaps particular liabilities. And he made a choice that we all support, uh, that we're all excited by, 
um, that you know will, uh, I think, give us a, a great chance to win in November, which I believe we will, and then to be able to go about the very challenging task of governing in a context when so many challenges await the next president uh, and when so much damage has been done domestically and internationally uh, to our uh, competency and capacity. So I, I'm hopeful. I think he made a great choice. And uh, I certainly will join with all of the women um, who are under consideration and doing our utmost to try to get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris elected. Well, one of the things that, that is so striking, there is so much right now going on in the world outside the convention hall that really, uh, you know, shaping, I think, the uh, the themes that we've heard this week, both of the sort of dark place that the country is in and also Vice President Biden's capacity to, to lead it out of that. You've talked before about how the Obama administration had shaped a strategy for dealing with a, a, a pandemic like the one that the country is dealing with now. And you've criticized the Trump administration for, for not paying attention to that plan. If Vice President, if Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, what do you think um, with that sort of plan in mind, ought to be the first two or three things that, that his administration would have to do to get the COVID-19 epidemic under control. Well, Karen, unfortunately, if we're lucky enough to have Joe Biden as our next president in January, it will have been a year since this crisis first arose. And many of the steps that would have been wise to take at the outset uh, will be uh, sort of uh, trains that have already left the station. But the things that will still matter, assuming that we uh, are much in the same place as we are today, um, are first of all, having clear, science-driven, um, fact-based communication and leadership from the top. Not a bunch of lies and distractions and, and quackery, but a, a leader in the White House who communicates clearly on things like the necessity of wearing masks. You know, Joe Biden has called for a national mask mandate, which I think is frankly overdue, will have clarity about the necessity of um, prioritizing, bending the curve and keeping it down uh, in jurisdictions across the country as a prerequisite for responsibly and sustainably uh, reopening the economy and more importantly, enabling uh, or as importantly, enabling our, our kids to go back to school safely. Um, we will hopefully be in a position to be wrestling with the question of how best to disseminate uh, what we hope will be a safe and effective vaccine. Uh, the, uh, Dr. Fauci and others are saying that we could have the, the beginnings of that early in uh, 2021. Let's hope so. But then we're going to face enormous challenges as to who gets it first and how we ensure that it is rolled out and provided to Americans in a fashion that is both rational and fair, um, but also maximally protective. And then, Karen, people, the third thing is people have to understand that it's not sufficient for the United States to successfully vaccinate the bulk of its population, which itself will be extraordinarily difficult. We've got to see that vaccine globally disseminated as widely as possible because vac vaccines prevent diseases, but diseases don't uh, respect borders. And if this disease, uh, COVID-19, remains uh, prevalent in other far-flung parts of the world, 
it could well mutate and come back and infect Americans again. So we cannot be satisfied with simply a domestic response to this, which has been one of the great failures of the Trump administration. And then finally, Karen, the, the need for much more widely available rapid testing and contact tracing is not going to go away. And that failure uh, is, is sort of one of the original sins of this whole pandemic uh, in terms of how the United States and the White House has handled it. We have got to get uh, far ahead of the, the testing imperative, finally. You know, there's, as I said, so much else going on this week. And there was another piece of news that I think if we were living in anything close to a normal time, we would be talking about nothing else. And that was the Senate Intelligence Committee finally puts out its report on Russian efforts to interfere with our election in 2016. Was there anything in that report that surprised you? As much as I know about Russian interference, um, in the 2016 election. Yes, I mean that that report was really remarkable in a number of ways. First of all, a thousand pages. Uh, and the, the mandate of the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee uh, in producing its bipartisan report was not to do what Mueller did, which was to look for, for criminal activity, but to really get underneath the story of what happened from an intelligence point of view and also from a counterintelligence point of view. And what that report detailed, even to a, a greater extent than the Mueller report, was the breadth and the depth of the contacts, communication, coordination between those uh, involved in the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence operatives, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and so what this report does is detail uh, it, uh, it, the nature and, and, the, and the breadth of those contacts and call into question the veracity of the testimony that the, the president provided pursuant to the Mueller investigation under oath um, and many other things uh, that, that had not been so clearly uh, articulated and plainly revealed until recently. And it was beyond, you know, beyond looking backward. Um, how convinced are you that that Russia is still out there trying to do these sorts of things as we are closing in on the the final stretch to our elections this November? I almost never say this, uh, Karen, but one hundred percent convinced that Russia is doing much of what it did in 2016, and certainly more. Uh, and what's different now, we, first of all, um, the intelligence community, as it did in 2016, has now recently come out with a very clear statement of what Russia is doing. It got a little bit muddied up by trying to conflate what China and Iran may be doing, which is completely different and on a far lesser scale and in the public domain relative to what Russia is doing covertly and, and very perniciously. But you know, we need to be worried about not only Russian disinformation, its activity on social media, which is constant, aimed at misleading and dividing and instilling fear and hatred between and among Americans. But we need to be concerned also about what efforts it may make again to try to infiltrate our voting systems and, and corrupt 
either our voting rolls or even potentially uh, the voting uh, count itself. That's very hard to do. And hopefully in the intervening years, even more steps have been taken to harden our systems. I, I believe in many cases that's the case, but I also think the Russians aren't going to stop trying. And then the other thing that I'm deeply concerned about is what we have seen in front of our very eyes over the last couple of years, which is you know, presidential uh, envoys like Rudy Giuliani actively and openly, openly soliciting bogus information to weaponize against Donald Trump's opponent, in this case, Joe Biden, uh, and soliciting that false information from Russian-backed Ukrainian operatives. Uh, and doing so, it would appear now, with the support uh, and the uh, and the added engagement of senators like Ron Johnson and his committee uh, that seem to be part of this scheme this time, which is truly extraordinary. So it's not just the Russians. It's not just the Trump uh, campaign and those involved with it. It's also now some, uh, uh, at least a handful of Republicans in the Senate who seem to be willing to sully themselves with Russian propaganda in order to uh, to advantage Donald Trump again in this election. And and yet, as you mentioned, um, the the Senate Intelligence Committee is run by Republicans, as the entire Senate is. So do you think that this thousand page report, again, something where the Republicans themselves were the primary drivers behind it, is going to make any kind of difference in sort of the where the party is oriented? Because we do have a president who keeps talking about all of this as a hoax and a fantasy and um, you know just purely, purely politically driven. So will this report make any difference? Well, I think it will make a difference in, in the following sense. First of all, uh, it, it was a bipartisan report that was the product of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which thus far has largely remained apolitical, unlike its counterpart in the House when led by Devin Nunes. Uh, yes, the Republicans uh, were the majority on that committee. They signed on to it. And I give them real credit for the substance of that report. Uh, and the Democrats who served with them on that committee. But then you get to the aftermath where you know you can read the report and the report's very factual, very substantive. And then there's the spin that went with the release of the report, uh, which really frankly contradicted uh, the, the substance of the report. Leaving that aside, um, I, I think that you know for those who um, ought to be and are rightly concerned about the real threat of foreign interference again in our democratic processes. This report uh, should add greater clarity to the nature of the tactics and open eyes to the concerns. But I'm, I'm more concerned that what is likely to happen is that at least uh, on the Republican side, that there's a, a impulse to, uh, to, to look the other way at best or uh, to uh, put a happy, put lipstick on a pig as Marco Rubio did in, in his characterization of the findings of the report, all in an effort to, uh, to change the subject just at the time that we need to be focused on this threat uh, most directly. And, and then Karen, the other thing is we, we can't look at 
what Russia's doing and what uh, you know the the Trump campaign may be doing to uh, encourage Russian involvement in isolation. It's of a piece. Combine that with Donald Trump, you know, calling into question the validity of the results, saying if he doesn't win, it's got to be because of fraud. That is the height of anti-democratic authoritarian uh, policy. It's it's exceedingly dangerous to our democracy. His threats to mail-in voting, his threats to the post office, you add all of these things together, calling in the troops to uh, urban areas uh, in order to use violence against peaceful protesters. This is all a dangerous series of, uh, of tactics that taken together pose a very serious threat to the integrity uh, of our democracy. Well, there's also at least what I think is a, a very possible scenario that we are not going to know who the winner of this election is on election day. Um, you look at Arizona in 2018, a you know, a number of the candidates were, who were ahead on election night, uh, you know, the, the fell behind as the mail-in ballots started coming in. And Arizona, in fact, itself could be, you know, a, a determining state this time. But the president keeps saying over and over, if we don't know who the winner is by by the time by the time we hit bedtime on election night, you know that there's going to be fraud involved. That um, you know this is not because they're carefully counting the votes; it's because somebody's rigging it. I mean, what what do you as you look forward if in that kind of scenario? Say it takes another week to come up with the winner of this. What is sort of life going to be like for all of us? Well, I think Americans should expect, absent any uh, you know, extenuating circumstances, that it will not be on the night of November 3rd that we know the results. Uh, that for a variety of reasons, uh, it will legitimately take additional time uh, to come to a, a, a legitimate conclusion. And we have to be patient. We have to look at what's happened, not just in Arizona in the past, in a number of other states like California, where a number of uh, you know congressional races take weeks to get decided, but um, what we've seen in the primary process, um, exacerbated by the pandemic, by uh, you know fewer uh, polling stations, by uh, greater reliance uh, on voting by mail. We have to be patient. And we have to recognize that it is likely the case that we won't know the results for some while after November 3rd. And we've got to be patient in that regard. Okay, could I turn to sort of the United States and its place these days on the world stage? Um, the, you know, the administration chalked up what a lot of people regarded with a win and got a very big embarrassing loss this week. Uh, the win being the the peace deal with Israel and the UAE, the loss being their effort in the United Nations, your old, uh, your old stomping grounds, to extend the Iran sanctions. Um, whoever succeeds Donald Trump, whether it is in January or four years after January, is going to inherit a situation where the United States has a very different place in the world among its allies and among its adversaries. 
how big of a challenge is that going to be or or you know do you, would it just be fixed by having somebody else in the white house or is there other work that's going to have to be done the challenge is huge karen uh and electing joe biden who is known to uh our friends and adversaries around the world who's experienced who's sober uh who has good judgment and personal relationships and you know the ability to put the national interest where it belongs which is at the forefront is necessary electing joe biden is necessary but it's not sufficient it's going to require as well a great deal of patience and humility and hard work on behalf of the entirety of the new administration to try to put back together most importantly our core alliance relationships and partnerships around the world that have suffered immeasurable damage in terms of loss of trust uh, a sense that we no longer share interests that we have abandoned our values and then we also have to write uh, our relationships with our adversaries who have enjoyed extraordinary um, leeway um, and and benefits under Donald Trump and this has been the best four years for China uh, of of almost any uh, in its modern history uh, Russia uh, is who interferes daily in our democracy is being protected by Donald Trump for reasons that we still don't fully understand. Kim Jong-un is a recipient of, of love letters while his nuclear program has persisted and his missile program. So there is a great deal of, of work to be done to renew and refresh our leadership role in the world. I believe we can do it, but I believe it, 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 we have to be you know, realistic about the amount of time it will take and the damage that's been done. Uh, and it begins with our allies and partners. It also begins in places like the United Nations where you know it, it's an utter embarrassment that we put forward a resolution on Iran last week and the only country in the Security Council that voted with us um, was the Dominican Republic. Everybody else um, either abstained or opposed it. And today, Mike, Mike Pompeo is, is about to launch uh, a, an even more uh, dangerous gambit at the UN in New York, related to Iran again, seeking to snap back sanctions on Iran, even though the United States is the one that pulled out of the deal in 2018 uh, and, and violated uh, its terms uh, in the first instance. Um, nobody is going to support us in that regard either. Uh, and it is going to call into question our ability to sustain the all crucial veto power that we have in the, in the United Nations. Um, and it will do potentially irreparable damage to any prospect of containing Iran's nuclear program. Could I back you up a little bit? You mentioned China and you said this has been the best four years for China in a very long time. One of the major lines of attack that the Republicans seem to have on Vice President Biden is that he's too soft on China. Could you explain why you believe these last four years have been have been good for China and why what you think vice how Vice President Biden would would change that relationship? The reason why the last four years have been so good for China is because the United States under Donald Trump has done its utmost to undermine our alliance relationships in Asia and in Europe. 
And China wants nothing more than to see our alliance structures dismantled. That has been a longstanding geostrategic goal of China, and Donald Trump has played directly into their hands. So now, uh, when you know China misbehaves in the South China Sea or steals our intellectual property uh, or engages in, in in trade practices that we find um, highly detrimental to our interests, rather than facing the United States in close alignment with its Asian and European allies to push back on China. We've gone it alone. And the greatest example of that is in the trade sphere, where Donald Trump invested all kinds of effort and energy into what is largely a hollow trade agreement at the expense of our farmers and manufacturers, and could have gotten a great deal more had he worked with our, our Asian and European allies to put combined economic pressure on China. Instead, he started bilateral trade wars with the Europeans and the Canadians and, and others over issues that, that are of far lesser significance. Um, and so that is emblematic of the way in which he has mismanaged the relationship with China, not to mention his praise for Xi Jinping, you know, admiring his uh, aspirations to be dictator for life, turning the other way and green lighting uh, violence against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province and against peaceful protesters in Hong Kong. We've had a bifurcated message out of this administration. The White House, um, with its you know, largely uh, positive rhetoric towards China, including calling on China to interfere in our elections, and the State Department and other agencies with a tougher line. Um, and the net uh, sum of all of that is that we are further behind on our economic agenda and in our strategic relationship with the, the Asia Pacific region and the world in general, and China's position has been enhanced. And one last example, you know, we walked out of the, the World Health Organization out of peak at uh, the way we claimed it managed the, uh, the coronavirus with respect to China. But by walking away, we ceded the entirety of the leadership in that organization to China. And that's sort of also an example of, of how we've handled it. If we don't like something, Donald Trump takes his marbles and goes home. But he's just leaving the field wide open to China uh, and, and China's interests and, and China's values, which are antithetical to our own. So beyond um, rebuilding the, the relations with our allies and perhaps taking a longer term view to our relations with China, the, a longer term, because they, they certainly have a long term view about their place in the world. And, and these trade wars really are, you know, short term tactics. What would you like to see Vice President Biden do early on to sort of reset the relationship with China itself? Well, understand that Joe Biden has a long history with China. He has been firm when he's traveled to China, calling them out on their human rights abuses on Chinese soil. He was instrumental in the effort to uh, obtain what we accomplished on the, under the Obama administration, which was a serious agreement that for years imposed effective restraints on China's cyber theft of American intellectual property. Uh, it was the Obama administration that implemented the rebalance to Asia and the repositioning and, and increase in U.S. forces um, in the Asia Pacific. All of those things will be elements of, of what Joe Biden brings, but a great deal more because obviously things have changed since 2016. And when it comes to China, 
uh, in addition to working with our allies and having a, an appropriate force posture and being clear on the threat that China poses economically and strategically, we have to get our own house in order. Our strength with China begins with our own R&D, our own significant investments in the technologies of the future, whether it's clean energy or artificial intelligence, which China is trying to beat us on. Um, you know, when we have an immigration system that closes us off from, from vital talent that we customarily benefit from coming from the rest of the world, we are putting ourselves at a strategic disadvantage. So a lot of what we has to do, have to do is here on the domestic front to maintain and enhance our global competitiveness in these industries of the future. Um, and then we also need to be faithful to our values and stand up for human rights as Joe Biden has traditionally done and will do yet again with China. So it's a multifaceted uh, set of actions that we need to take. Um, you know, we're gonna rebuild American industry and be very clear about ensuring that, you know, critical supplies like medical supplies and other things, we are not overly reliant on any country, but particularly China uh, to procure because we're gonna make them here at home. So for all of the bluster and, and rhetoric that we've heard out of Donald Trump, all the, you know, the banging of the table in, in, a, in a trade war that has yielded virtually nothing for the American worker and American farmer, we have the opportunity to approach this relationship smarter, more effectively, with our domestic house in order and our allies behind us. And with as many challenges as we have here at home, you know, economically, a, a pandemic, you know, all the things, uh, foreign policy, at least on a substantive level, uh, other than President Trump calling this the China virus 10 times a day, but on a substantive level, you know, foreign policy has not gotten a lot of attention in this campaign season. Is there is there a part of the world or an issue that you think that we as a country, we as an electorate are taking uh, taking our eye off of something we really ought to be paying more attention to? Well, there are many issues around the world, uh, Karen, that we ought to be paying more attention to. Um, but I think that the biggest ones um, relate to China, uh, relate to Russia and its efforts to undermine our uh, democracy and climate change, which is a huge uh, looming existential threat, which this administration has exacerbated and accelerated. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic is a national security issue as well as a domestic issue. Uh, we were unprepared because Donald Trump refused to use the tools that were available to him that we left him to utilize. He denied the severity of the virus. He never put in place the testing uh, mechanisms. You know, he reopened the economy prematurely. He's championed sending our students back to schools um, and putting them and our teachers at risk. He's basically done everything wrong. And as I mentioned earlier, has not had any global component to our, uh, our response to the coronavirus, which is essential over the medium term if we are going to prevent this virus from coming back and reinfecting us here in the United States. So all of these issues are top priorities. Um, they don't necessarily merit the airtime that they might get in another circumstance during uh, the pandemic and an economic crisis, apart from the, the pandemic itself. Um, but we can't lose sight of the fact that this is an extremely consequential election. 
uh, not only to enable the United States to lead again in the world as a respected, trusted um, uh, player, but also to, to put the appropriate pressure on, on China uh, that is necessary to advance and secure our interests, to be clear-eyed about the Russian threat, to deal with other issues like North Korea, which Donald Trump is, is allowed to become worse, but also to, to deal with the, the primary threats that affect countries all over the planet, like climate change, which Donald Trump has absolutely no interest in addressing. Well, because I am a political columnist, I am going to have to ask you the question that you probably are getting tired of being asked, but there, there really is, no one with your resume, I didn't even mention the fact that you were an assistant secretary of state for Africa during the Clinton years. Um, if you became secretary of state in a Biden administration, I think that would be the most unsurprising choice possible. How interested are you in playing a role in a Biden administration and what role would you like to play? Well, guess what? Joe Biden gets to make that decision, and uh, I, I'll leave it to him to do so. Um, I've been clear that my interest is in doing everything I possibly can to help uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris become elected um, and take over uh, leadership in January of 2021. I also will do my utmost to help us flip the Senate, because that's critically important, uh, as well as holding the House. Um, and if Joe Biden thinks that I can be uh, a, a helpful member of his team uh, in, in a new administration, then I'd be delighted to contribute. Um, and, you know, I, I obviously I've spent many years in the State Department and working on national security and foreign policy at the White House as well. Um, so the national security agencies are, are places that I'm, I'm very familiar with. Um, but I, I, I would serve in, in any role that he thinks um, would be helpful to his team. Uh, and that's always what's motivated me, whether, you know, having the privilege of being considered for uh, vice president or serving in any other capacity. Uh, I just want the team to succeed. Well, with that, uh, with that answer, Ambassador Rice, I'm thinking you must be a diplomat. Um, thank you. Well, Our I, time has had to. But, yeah. Our, um, I'd say our, our time. Oh, I'm a diplomat. <laughs> well, our time unfortunately has run out and we do hope that you come back and join us here again soon on, on Post Live. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Karen. Appreciate it. Take care, everyone. You too. Stay healthy. You too. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.